bum bum bottom 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 bum
Darren kind of started the story off chapter one alone. We don't have a title yet with a, a woman in a dark room and this like magical ember floating through the darkness. Uh-huh. And then I took that and I, I, I imagined it as the ember coming from a candle she had lit in her bathroom because she had just taken a huge dump. <laughs> <laughs> and then Darren just keeps wanting to bring it back into the magical realm. And he's introduced a doppelganger character into the story. And then I immediately took that doppelganger character and murdered the main character, or at least the character that started off this story. I think this is really, we haven't done any self-help books about birth order, but I think, <laughs> like, because, like, Darren is the oldest, and so he wants to lead, and yeah. he wants to look like he has this secret plan. Yeah. Brad is an only child yes. who's like, these are all of my toys. Yes. If you build with the blocks, I'm just going to knock it over because I have I am the king. I'm gonna take your blocks and build my own castle. And then I am a middle child who's like, okay, how do I deliver something that both continues Brad's radical idea? but kind of brings it to the middle ground to where Darren can come back in and return to his tone of narrative. So I feel like I'm mediating, but like in a really satisfying way. I like doing it. And our other uh, it mod buddy, Brian, is part of the text chain too, but he has yet to contribute. I'm just waiting for him to pounce. Yeah. (laughs) I I know that he's going to blow our minds. He's a very cinematic thinker. Very much so. Uh, You know, like I was so leery of this idea when Darren came up with it because I am the type of person, especially when it comes to fiction, who tortures himself Mm. over the writing process to the point where I can't even put a sentence together because it just never works for me. And once he sent that first paragraph off, and then I responded to it, and I had like this rush of, of uh, endorphins, yeah, like, like hit me. I suddenly I was like, no, this is the greatest thing ever, and it's the thing I'm the most excited about while we're all uh, sheltering in place in our apartments. Like it's 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 been so fun, and we're only into like day two of this story. I think that a, a huge part of it is the tremendous level of trust we have with Darren and Brian. I think that this would there are certain friends of ours that we super admire a lot where we would feel super intimidated by just crapping out a paragraph. Yeah, and that's sending true. It to that's them. true. Yeah. But, yeah. We know that Darren and Brian aren't going to mock us because we misspelled a word or that metaphor doesn't quite work or whatever. Right. And and uh Brad doesn't feel like he's going to uh, hurt anybody's feelings by uh, murdering all of the characters. Correct. That's right. That's right. Uh, so we'll see how this goes. I highly recommend it to our listeners to give it a shot with your friends. Uh, it's very silly. It's very fun. But also, like, it is a burst of creativity in, in the middle of your day or whenever the text drops. I'm tempted to maybe buy a notebook for the two of us and maybe, like, I could start my day by doing a writing on a little bit of a story, and then you could end your day by writing on our story. I mean, I, I'm not a, a, a totally against that, but to me, it's all about being in the form of a text. Oh. <laughs> so that I, I'm i not literally putting a pen to paper, you know, I'm not torturing myself over oh, the act you, of writing. Because if there's like a volcano and everything is destroyed, but this notebook, somebody's going to read it. No, and no, 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 no. There's something extremely freeing about doing it in a text format, because... 
while you're writing the text, you're not seeing the oh, paragraphs build. Yeah. And so you're not worrying about the terrible sentence you wrote three sentences ago. It's already in the past. Yeah. This is the little, you know, rectangle I tweet with. How serious can I really Exactly, take it? exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, like when it's all said and done, maybe you could make something out of this you know, screenplay, text play, whatever the heck we want to call it. Well, I've already like in my head with like the one little paragraph I've written, I've come up with like a complete idea from beginning to end. I know you have, yeah. Where um, I, I go like, well, even if Brad introduced Lion-O like he wants to do. Um, <laughs> <Time> to <catch>. <laughs> uh, I still have my story that's in my head and who knows? I could write that down. Yeah, sometime. yeah but it's great. I'm loving it. Me uh, too. Episode 49. We're one episode away from the big five. Oh, I know. I'm so excited to get to Don Greenwood and Silver Surfer, but I'm also like, wary because I love them so much. Yeah, yeah. They are the the comic book couple that is the most precious to me. I know, I know. And that's also why I'm wary and excited. Yeah, I still haven't chosen. Well, by the time we finish this episode, I will have had to have committed to a self-help love guru, but oh, it's hard to choose. Yeah, well, well, you you have uh, th this recording session to come up with it, Lisa. Oh my! Um, but as our listeners should already know, we're massive fans of first, second books. Having already covered fantastic titles like Bloom and On a Sunbeam for this podcast, yeah. Uh, we could easily splinter this podcast into a first, seconds book only podcast. They have so much material to work with. Does that already exist? Does somebody, like, dibs, trademark, <laughs> TM, the first, uh, second book, second, uh, when we get done recording, podcast. I'm going to look it up. I'm going to oh, look it up. Do. But because we wanted to fill that numerical gap between episodes 48 and 50, we didn't want Nora and Rad and Don Greenwood to start with episode 49. We wanted the power of starting with episode 50. And so we needed an original graphic novel to hold, to glue those two couples together. And for a second book seemed like the obvious choice. Oh yeah. For a one-off romance, it's your one-stop shop. Yeah. And you had already read Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me. And this was your suggestion. And this was my first time reading it. But why did you pick it in the first place? Why was this the, the right book for comic book couples counseling? I think, and I'm not positive, I think it was suggested to me by Kevin Panetta. Author of Bloom. That's right. And the cover of the book was so compelling to me. I loved the art. And uh, I was in the mood for a teenage romance following Bloom. That being said, these are two very different books. Yeah, for sure. How would you describe that difference? Well, Bloom is like a feel-good book. It's like aspirational. Mm -hmm. It shows, like, Hector makes Ari a better person. He helps guide him to his true self. Where in Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, it has some of those common foibles you make as a teenager where when you're, like, so desperate to have a, a relationship that you don't... you and you don't have the experience to recognize, oh, this is toxic and I am becoming horrible. So reading Laura Dean demolished me the first time through and demolished me the second time through, to be honest. <laughs> it makes me extremely uncomfortable, 
But it is so true. And I think that, like, I imagine, like, a, a teenager reading this book will, through the empathy with Freddie, will hopefully avoid some of these pitfalls that feel inevitable. Yes, I would echo that. I would say that reading Bloom and going back and, and experiencing or re-experiencing those nostalgic pangs of young love, you come away going, oh, yeah, that's that's so sweet and nice. I feel good. But when Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me, revisiting those emotions, I mean, it's it gives you like the shivers, you know? Yeah. Uh, because we've all been there. But to your point again, it does feel like Mariko Tamaki is laying out a roadmap for people to follow or at least navigate uh, against what Freddie's going through. Yeah, it's a cautionary tale. Yeah. And both things for a young reader are 100% necessary. They need these stories in their toolbox. The aspirational story of how to find someone who compliments you and the cautionary tale of how do you get away from someone who is terrorizing you. Right, right. So let's talk about Mariko Tamaki and Rosemary Valero O'Connell real quick. Yeah. Mariko Tamaki is a Canadian comics writer, so she's very familiar with Tim Hortons. Uh, <laughs> she was born in Toronto in 1975. She attended the all-girls secondary school Havergal College, but she studied English at McGill University, from which she graduated in 1994. In Toronto, she worked as a performance artist as part of Pretty Porker and Keith Cole's Cheap Queers. I need to know more about that. I Yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, it comes up a little bit in Laura Dean Keeps... Uh, breaking up with me there's references to performance art yeah and so clearly she she knows that world well and i would like to read her graphic novel about it yes please uh, her first novel uh, cover me published in the year 2000 and as you might expect it was a coming of age story but one detailing the adolescent protagonist struggle with depression from there she published two essay collections true lies the book of bad advice and fake id her first graphic novel or mini comic really was called skim and was made in partnership with her cousin jillian tamaki uh, which was published in 2008 by groundhouse books it's an autobiographically adjacent tale about a 16-year-old Japanese-Canadian teenager trying to make her way through an all-girls Catholic school. Uh, I personally uh, became aware of Mariko and Jillian Tamaki after the publication of their graphic novel, This One Summer, in 2015. Which I've read. Once more, it's a tale of female coming of age, exploring notions of sexuality, mental fragility, and burdensome and stressful family dynamics. These kids are more like middle school age, okay. like younger. Yeah. Uh, the book was a sensation at Barnes & Noble, and I can't tell you how many people I sold this comic to. Lots and lots. Do our listeners know that we worked and met at Barnes & Noble? I think we've mentioned it in the past. I hope so. I hope so. Yeah, we met at Barnes & Noble. Love Between the Stacks. I was her manager. Not weird. <laughs> it's also worth noting that this one summer is the only graphic novel to win the Caldecott Medal, which is awarded to exceptional works in the field of picture books. Uh, next to the Newbery Award, it's the most important and recognized ceremony in the book field as far as Barnes & Noble is concerned. If you have watched as much Reading Rainbow as I did as a child, you know all of that yeah, stuff yeah, already. Yeah, and Barnes & Noble managers, when they weren't macking on their uh, subordinates, <laughs> uh, they paid very strict attentions to Caldecott winners and Newbery winners, as well as nominees. There's usually a table set up in the store 
uh, centered around the nominees. You were very respectful. All of the Mackin was done by me. That is true. You came after me. That's right. Now, Rosemary Valero O'Connell hails from Minneapolis, Minnesota, but she spent her formative years in Zaragoza, Spain. Her work has appeared all over the place, from Boom Studios and DC Comics to Mondo Tees and Crunchyroll. Outside of Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, her most notable comics work was for Gotham Academy Lumberjanes, the crossover comic that they did a few years back. Super cool. Uh, she also did the Steven Universe series, Too Cool for School, and uh, the publisher Shortbox will release her graphic collection don't go without me later this year nice i'll read all of those things i want to read all those things because uh laura dean keeps breaking up with me is crazy beautiful it's gorgeous and so much of the storytelling is done through the art yeah and like it's it's not just like brilliant illustration but it is incredible sequential storytelling like the paneling in this comic is unreal Inventive. Extremely inventive. Uh, but Lisa, you mentioned at the top of the show that we're going to apply your passion and obsession with advice columns to Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me. Uh, what does that mean exactly? I'm not sure. <laughs> As a person who is totally obsessed with self-help gurus, advice columnists, like... The one outstanding feature of most of them is that they're like self-proclaimed. Mm -hmm. Like not every single one has a background in like psychology or counseling. They just one day decide like, I'm, I've had enough relationships that I can be a relationship advice person. Which is hilarious because our initial trepidation with this podcast was, well, we're not a couple of experts. Let's go to the experts. And the reason that we do that is because like, I always feel like, my my opinion is not sufficient for giving like speaking to somebody else's narrative but i think it's so funny because i like i entertain myself by listening to people go off half cocked about relationship advice all of the time yeah that's your podcast go to oh absolutely Generally, when we have one of these interstitial one-off episodes, we just carry over the love guru from the last series proper, <laughs> which would be Roberta M. Gilbert and her book, Extraordinary Relationships. But we used her for our Umbrella Academy panel. Woohoo, which went off without a hitch. Thank you guys for showing up, the ones that you, that you did. Uh, we had 1,200 views when it was live, Lisa. I know, which is so weird, because it really did just feel like us talking in a vacuum yeah, to our friend Liz. why did none of you leave us a question to answer <laughs> at the end? <laughs> well, uh, that, I mean, we could really go off on a tangent there, but, uh, that, I mean, I think that was partly our fault, but whatever. Frankly... I feel all talked out about the Boas family systems theory. I certainly learned a lot and gained a lot from applying certain aspects of the Bowens family systems theory to our episodes and to our relationship. But I'm sorry, Roberta. It's time for me to start seeing other love gurus. It's not you. It's me. Actually, no, it's it's. It, it's a little bit you, but um, <laughs> reading Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me with the narration being the series of emails Freddie was writing to an advice columnist, Anna Weiss, got me thinking about my origin story, where my fascination with self-help and advice columnists really began. In retrospect, I would have to say that my first love guru would have to be Fred Rogers on Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Yeah. 
It's thrilled me that he's had a bit of a resurgence as of late, both in the greater culture and in my heart, with the 2018 documentary, Won't You Be My Neighbor, and then the Tom Hanks movie, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Both so good. I watched Mr. Rogers and all of children's public television well past it being socially acceptable. (laughs) Like, it was embarrassing that I was still watching Mr. Rogers. And part of that was because we weren't allowed to watch non-educational television during the week, but also because I genuinely liked it. I fully acknowledge that Mr. Rogers and Sesame Street shaped my worldview enormously. I like like my little bit that I do, it was uh, like, what did my conservative Christian parents expect putting me in front of socialized public television? Like, and now I'm just like a total socialist. (laughs) (laughs) I also always like to read advice columns. My parents would get the Washington Post newspaper. They still do. And I would read the advice columns out of the style section. I would read Dear Abby, Ann Landers, Miss Manners, and later Carolyn Hacks. I would even read the columns that were not life advice or relationship advice. Like there was a column that was for household chores. It was like life hacks before they were a thing. I I tried to Google around and figure out what it was called, but I just couldn't find it. If there was a particularly interesting quandary, I would read it aloud to my mom and I would have her try to guess what Ann Landers or Carolyn said. And then we would discuss what we thought of the predicament. They were like little word problems, but about like empathy and feelings instead of math. When I was in high school, my friend Amy and I wanted boyfriends. So we (laughs) would go to Barnes and Noble way before I worked there, obviously, and sit right in front of the self-help section and would just read straight out of self-help books. Oh, I thought you were going to say, like, you were preying on managers then. Oh, what? No. We would read self-help books and try to figure out how to catch us a boy or two. (laughs) Needless to say, it was fruitless. Like, the the mistakes Freddie made in high school, I just... I just held over and I just made them in college. Mm. (laughs) High school was also the time I took my first Myers-Briggs type indicator test. I got INFP, which I still strongly identify with and get every time I retake the Myers-Briggs because I love thinking about myself. But those of you who have listened to the Spider-Man Mary Jane episodes already know all of that. (laughs) And I also was super into a book called The Cube, Keep the Secret by Anne Gottlieb, which was an imagination game where the book would lead you through visualizations like, imagine a horse. And if you imagined a white horse, you were like a dreamer. And if you imagined a brown horse, you were like a pervert or something. (laughs) It was that sort of thing. I think Anne Gottlieb would actually make a super fun love guru. She has other books. Oh, we should totally do that. I think it would be hilarious. The Cube is complete and total cold reading BS, but it's silly fun. It'd be fun, yeah. Brad, I know in your youth, you were not into self-help anything, but no. your, your dad super is. Yeah, like when my dad left the Navy uh, sometime, let's see, maybe 1990 when he left the Navy, he became a consultant for Price Waterhouse. And actually, he became a consultant for Coopers and Librand. Let's not go to my dad's history. But uh, he became a consultant. And when he became a consultant, he became obsessed with business self-help books, things like The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And part of my rebellion was to reject all of that. Yeah. Uh, 
about it because he would try to get me to read these books and he would talk about them all the time. And because he suffered through my ramblings regarding comic books and movies, I suffered through his ramblings regarding seven habits of highly effective people. Um, but my rebellion was like, you can tell me about it, dad, but I will never read that book. And I will never read any self-help book that you would throw at me. Um, and, and so for a long time, I looked at that whole section in Barnes and Noble, even while I was working there as total woo. Ah. And I refused to believe it had any value. And I'm pretty sure that that was the Brad that I met. Yeah. Yeah. College was a time where I did a complete and total worldview overhaul, which is when it's supposed to happen anyway. I got something of a false start because I had a pretty debilitating bout with depression, which sapped a lot of my energy and curiosity. But by my second senior year, I had stumbled over an entirely different worldview thanks to the celebrity magician Penn Jillette who introduced me to the concept of the skeptics movement, which was the idea that you shouldn't give credence to anything that cannot be proved by science. I listened to a ton of skeptic podcasts, which I have since dropped, but they included Penn Radio, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, The Skeptic Zone, George Harab's Geologic, and This Week in Science. I still wouldn't call myself a skeptic today, mostly because I don't, like, I'm not in the mood to change anybody else's mind. If if you believe in magical thinking, like, why would I want to get into the way of, the, in, in your way? But I think that taking a sojourn away from magical thinking for myself honed my critical thinking skills, and I still lean pretty hard towards science-based yeah. thinking for the most part. I still listen to Pendulette. I He has a new podcast. It's called Penn Sunday School. It's great. So this is the around the time that I met you, Brad. Yeah. So when you met me, like, my entire worldview cement had just been poured. Well, I remember our first, like, nighttime date. We went to that hookah bar. Yeah. And the entire conversation was about skepticism. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to me that you were incredibly passionate about it. Uh, but again, I think because of who I was... You know, I grew up a religious, uh, I don't think I would say that I was an atheist, but the conversation around God never entered my head at all. I never considered God in any way, and I never struggled with that question. I just lived my life reading comic books and watching movies. Mm -hmm. um, and because of that date and the subsequent dates that came after that, I really did have to start forming an opinion about my own belief system. I love that insight because... I am so curious about what and how people think. So you literally could not have a conversation with me and get close to me without having answers to some of those questions. <laughs> right, right, right. Which was intimidating, but also exciting. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that it was through one of my skeptic podcasts that I discovered Dan Savage, the sex advice columnist and podcaster. His show, The Savage Love Podcast, really shook loose any latent conservative leanings I still had rattling around in my brain. <laughs> he started his column in 1991 under the conceit that straight sex and relationship advice columnists seem perfectly comfortable telling gay people about how and if they should be having sex or not. So he would be a gay guy who would tell straight people how to have sex, something of a queer eye for straight sex. 
By the time I started listening to his podcast, however, around 2008 or 2009, he was giving advice to anyone and everyone. It was really the first time that I considered that the rules for sex, love, and relationships are not universal, but individual. And so it's really, really important to be talking about your personal expectations, fantasies, and boundaries all of the time. He introduced me to the idea of being sex positive, which blew my mind. Not an intended innuendo, but there it is. (laughs) I've toyed with the idea of using Dan Savage as a love guru at some point, but his books are more autobiographical than advice books, and his body of work is so vast, I, I wouldn't know where to begin. Now I listen to a ton of advice podcasts or podcasts with a self-help bent to them. Some of my favorites include Forever 35, which is a self-care podcast for ladies of a certain age, uh, Happier with Gretchen Rubin, who is for sure going to be a love guru when we get around to the Fantastic Four. Yeah! I Weigh with Jamila Jamil, which is about, uh, like, body positivity. And I literally subscribed to Michelle Obama's new self-improvement podcast, The Michelle Obama Podcast. Get out of my lane, Michelle. Uh, I I welcome her. I welcome her. (laughs) I also subscribe. I've already listened to the first episode. Was it good? It's really cute because it's with Barack. Yeah. So sweet. I also listen to a bunch of comedy podcasts that parade as self-help or advice podcasts. My Brother and My Brother and Me, Couples Therapy by Naomi Ekparrigan and Andy Beckerman, The Getting Better podcast with Ron Funches, the Judge John Hodgman podcast. I just thought of another one that I didn't put in my notes, but it's great. Uh, Nicole Byers' Why Won't You Date Me? Because it's all about relationships. And The Endless Honeymoon podcast by Moshe Kasher and Natasha Leggero. Brad, I feel that your relationship to self-improvement related media has really changed over the course of our relationship. I think that starting a podcast that relates it to comics yeah. has certainly helped. But where like where are you at now? Well, I mean, I, I you know, uh, as I was saying, you know, I rejected all of that stuff that my dad tried to get me to to be into and when you were really into uh, all that skeptic stuff when we first started dating, that started the process of me looking inward. And through our relationship, I have come around on uh, self-help material. And I do find a lot of value in using somebody else's uh, thought process in exploring the internal uh, to help you explore the internal, right? Mm-hmm. And of course, this podcast has helped me on that journey tremendously. And I've really enjoyed our conversations with Roberta M. Gilbert or Dr. Stan Tatkin or Gary Chapman, even when I think that those b- books are incredibly problematic as well. Um, but, you know, I, 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 I think that this podcast has helped me. The other thing that's really helped me, honestly, is Netflix's Queer Eye. Yes. Uh, you know, it's five seasons of it. And it and I think those, uh, I, I, I think, you know, my boys and Jonathan, uh, I think that they have really shown me the benefit of self-care and self-celebration, right? To love the person who you already are. Like they say every episode, what you give us works. We just fine tune it a little bit. And all we need is a little fine tuning. And I think if you're in the process of fine tuning, uh, you will be happier. 
Yeah, I, I love that. And I love the the vernacular that Queer Eye has brought into our home where it's okay to go like, I wish I could do this to look a little bit better or do this for myself so I can feel a little bit better. I think it's absolutely positive and beautiful and and I love them. We could all use five uh, folks to come into our lives and focus on us for a week. Yeah. You know, like what they do... Um, you know, I don't want to say it's like the Lord's work because, again, we talked about my A religion. Uh, <laughs> but, like, they do great work. They do the people's work. Time, they, they're telling people, hey, time spent on you is not a waste of time. Yes. The love you give yourself is not a waste of time. We need it. Yeah. I would love to figure out a way to make the Fab Five a love guru, like, as oh, a team. Yes. Maybe yes. rewatching. We literally just rewatched all of Queer Eye, but, like, maybe watching it in a systematic way of pulling out, like, little aphorisms love or something. Love this idea. Love this idea. Mm. Pin in that. Yeah, okay. So that is your history mm -hmm. with self-help, Lisa. But why do you have this history with self-help? I actually, I have, n I have no idea. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that it is an extension of how truly self-centered I really am. <laughs> like it's a way I can get get away with reading and listening to stuff that is truly uh, like about me. Like <laughs> why would I read a novel about a made-up stranger when I could just read a book that's about myself? Amazing. Uh, <laughs> I, I But honestly, like I think one of my basic self principles is a uh, shout out to Roberta M. Gilbert, learning and changing all the time. Like I really do pride myself on having a growth mindset and truly believing that I can do better and be better. And so I think that finding little tricks and tips and pathways to being a better friend to myself, a better friend to the world, like a better partner for you, a better family member for my my family and my extended family. Uh, I find all of that stuff valuable. And I think that it does bring a lot of perspective and happiness to my life. What I love about this conversation is that I feel like Freddie and Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me is in the early stages of the journey that you have gone on or that you're in the process of, be, uh, of partaking in, right? Uh, yeah. And her adventures with Anna Vice, like it might, it might end, but there's another Anna Vice. Like she's going to find all kinds of mentors. She's going to gravitate towards these self-help gurus in the same way that you did. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And I also love the fact that by the time we get to Anna Vice's response to Freddie, Freddie has discovered a lot of the answers all on her own. Yeah through her own mistakes. And Anna isn't there to be like, these are the rules and this is what you should do because I'm the wise person. Anna Vice gives more of the advice of like, just keep being true to yourself. Just be checking in with yourself to make sure that the decisions that you make, the breakups that you take are guiding you to be a happier person. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Now, before we place Freddie and Laura on our counseling couch, let's center ourselves with the words of affirmation, Lisa. Yes, we decided that uh, while we love getting reviews and we 
ask for those reviews. It's pretty bad form to start every podcast with complimenting ourselves. <laughs> um, but we can't not do it because words of affirmation is both of our love languages. So we wanted to put a little segment in the middle of the pod where we read your reviews, uh, absorb the love, br- bring, make your comments and compliments part of our being, and then we go into the body of the podcast proper. Yeah, because we have been getting a lot of really great reviews. We have and, a back catalog of reviews. Which is the best feeling ever. It really is. Before it, we started this podcast, Brad got a little pat on the back from his boss. And he's like, it is stupid how much my my love language is words of affirmation. And I'm the same way. Like, uh, we both need a little applause every once in a while to keep to keep moving. Yeah, definitely. Uh, And this review comes from Nashville 91. It's five stars. The title of it is Love It! Exclamation mark. And here's what they have to say. Uh, After I read the two issues of Convergence Nightwing Oracle, I was so bummed that there wasn't any more. I wanted to see them as a married couple, and there should have been 12 issues total, not two. Also, with these two, I can picture them having six kids or more! Exclamation mark. I am also so fed up with whoever doesn't want these two to become a real couple in canon of comics. Great job, Brad and Lisa, or Lisa and Brad. Yeah. Yeah. I echo all of those sentiments. Yeah, yeah. Like, we talked about it on that episode, our last one on Dick and Babs, or Babs and Dick, uh, that two issues was not enough. Not sufficient. Yeah, yeah. And Nashville 91 agrees. Uh, Nice. Thank you so much for leaving the five-star reviews. Uh, Keep them coming, folks. We're loving them. We need them, like Lisa said. Now, getting to Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, written by Marika Tamaki and illustrated by Rosemary Valero O'Connell and published by First Second Books... Uh, as an original graphic novel in May of 2019. Here's the basic plot taken straight from the back of the book or the little inside flaps, as the case may be with most first second books. We love them flaps. Yes. So it says, Author Mariko Tamaki and illustrator Rosemary Valero O'Connell bring to life a sweet and spirited tale of young love in Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, a graphic novel that asks us to consider what happens when we ditch the toxic relationships we crave to embrace the healthy ones we need. Laura Dean, the most popular girl in high school, was Federica Riley's dream girl. Charming, confident, and so cute. There's just one problem. Laura Dean is maybe not the greatest girlfriend. Reeling from her latest breakup, Freddie's best friend Doodle introduces her to the Seeker, a mysterious medium who leaves Freddie some cryptic parting words, break up with her. But Laura Dean keeps coming back, and as the relationship spirals further out of control, Freddie has to wonder if it's really Laura Dean that's the problem. Maybe it's Freddie, who is rapidly losing her friends, including Doodle, who needs her now more than ever. Fortunately for Freddie, there are new friends and the insight of advice columnists like Anna Weiss to help her through being a teenager in love. Okay, Lisa, you're always complaining about plot descriptions, but I think that's a pretty good one, huh? I feel like mentioning the seeker in the plot description is a little bit of a spoiler. Well, I felt like the entire flap was like one of those trailers that shows way too much Mm. of the movie. I mean, I think even talking about Doodle and needing her more than ever, I'm glad I didn't read this flap before I read the comic book because the back half of the book, when that 
becomes evident was a real surprise to me. Oh, yeah. I think, though, that it is good in the flap to imply that there is some kind of happy ending because, and that Freddie does, in fact, learn something and become a better person. Mm. Because I also didn't read the flap. I just dive right in like a fool. And there were points in this book where I was like, is this going to go to an entirely too dark a place? Well, I even asked you. I was like, Lisa, does this end tragically? I was like, hold on, buddy, because you're going to make it to the other side and there's going to be light at the end of this tunnel. Thank goodness. Mm -hmm. But before we can talk about the ending, we got to talk about the beginning. And this story starts at the dance. A Valentine's Day dance. A Valentine's Day dance. And Freddie is not going to the dance with Laura. She's expecting to meet Laura there. That's a very important detail. Yeah, and uh, of course, Laura's nowhere to be found when she initially shows up. And she's there with her friends. So the people she showed up with were Buddy, Eric, and Doodle. And they're all trying to have this great time while Freddie is completely distracted on when exactly is Laura Dean going to show up. Yeah, and this sets up the whole thought process of Freddie for the book where Laura is the only thing occupying her headspace. And that's the way that Laura wants it. Laura Dean operates in technicalities. Like, yeah, I want to be at the dance with you. I'll meet you at the dance. Then Frederica is completely preoccupied and there's like this like Schrodinger's girlfriend where she is both going to be at the dance with her and not going to be at the dance with her. And then when Laura Dean finally shows up and Frederico is like, where were you? She can breezily go like, I said I'd meet you at the dance and we're meeting you at the dance. What's your problem? The, the yeah. problem is you. Yeah. Laura likes to keep things so up in the air that she can control the narrative in any way she wants. She can bend the narrative to her point of view and not acknowledge uh, Freddie's feelings as being legitimate. Yeah, and Laura Dean's, well, because well, Freddie has set up with Laura Dean this idea that she's available. Like, and we see this as a trend throughout this book where Freddie will drop everything for Laura in any instance. And, uh, and her friends see that. They see that Freddie always has like one foot out the door, ready to go see Laura Dean at any moment. Right, and the conversations that you hear between Freddie and her friends in this first scene, uh, it's clear all that they are already sick of Laura. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but what I love about the book is it still manages to um, put the plots of the friends' lives out of the bounds of the narrative, right? Like mm -hmm. you have an idea that they've got their own stuff going on, but Mariko Tamaki is not acknowledging that stuff in any way. Because it's not in the forefront of Freddie's mind right. at all. Yeah, yeah. I think it's really well um, uh, structured in that fashion so that when the Friends narrative finally does come up in the book, it feels like a gut punch. Yeah, out of left field. Yeah. Laura and Freddie do have a good time at the dance. For... For but a blissful moment. For a panel, right? They they sh they have a dance. They share a moment on the floor together. And they look together. Yeah. All of Laura's attention feels like it's on Freddie, until somebody else at the prom is like, "Hey, Laura." Yeah, what's up? And Laura just leaves. Yeah, yeah. And where does she go? 
Freddie has no idea. And so now she's stuck looking for Laura and asking around, has anybody seen Laura? And you see her friends giving each other the side eye. Yeah, and they try to include Freddie in their dance experience, but she won't have any of it. She just wants to know where Laura is. And it turns out she is in the ladies' room making out with Mitzi. Smash cut to Freddie sobbing her guts out on the steps of the school. And while this is not the first breakup that she has experienced, it's the first breakup that we have experienced as the reader. Right, right. And she is downing the schnapps, which is disgusting. (laughs) Yeah, schnapps, no good. (laughs) High schoolers, stay away from schnapps. But like, and she highlights that she always ends up getting dumped around the holidays. Like July 4th, she got dumped because Laura Dean was going to be in Oregon for the summer. Then Halloween, she got dumped because Laura Dean was interested in maybe dating guys for a little bit. It's clear that Laura Dean wants to make all of these holidays about her for Freddie without actually having to be with Freddie. She creates this, like, she creates a tragedy that ruins what should be the highlights of Freddie's teenage life. But what I think Freddie doesn't recognize is that now every day, everybody's Valentine's Day is about her and Laura. And I think the challenge for me as a reader was the fact that it's so obvious that this relationship is one-sided from the jump mm-hmm. of the story and then you have to go through the agonizing process of Freddie awakening to that idea. Yeah. And, and so it is, it's just, it's it's a painful read in a lot of ways. And it's a type of book where you're like screaming at Freddie from across the panels, get rid of this girl. Yeah, but it really is like everybody around Freddie is tiptoeing because they all are aware that Laura Dean is manipulating her and making her miserable. But because Freddie keeps on ending back up with Laura Dean, they don't want to be, they don't want to feel, they don't want to be alienated from her during the happy times. And it's through the reader's relationship with her friends that you find comfort and you go like, okay, you know, the friends, Doodle is going to speak for Brad. Doodle is going to speak for Lisa. Uh, and and it's in those relationships that healing occurs, but also in the conversation that Freddie is starting to have with Anna Weiss in writing the letter, giving Anna Weiss the details of her situation, because clearly Freddie also knows that something is not right here. Yeah, and it's... And it's uh, fascinating to watch her fumble through some misconceptions, common misconceptions. I think that's really important. Before we go further, I do want to like throw out there that I don't want to demonize Laura Dean because I feel like she is also a young person who is coming into their power for the first time and... I think that Laura Dean does realize the power that she has, but they, I think they both come at this relationship with different expectations. With Freddie, her parents are the only parents that are still together. And I think that she has a greater sense of like loyalty to a partner. My expectation for myself is that I'm there for you. And my expectation for you is that you're there for me. Where 
Laura Dean's family doesn't look like that. Mm. And I think that is how Laura Dean justifies to herself how terribly she's treating Freddie. And I think that this is a, a tremendous learning moment for her, hopefully, when she finally loses Freddie at the end of this book. Maybe I can't treat people like that. Are you aware of the Stephanie Meyer book that's coming out or that may even have come out about Edward Cullen's point of view on the Twilight Saga? I've heard it spoken about, but I don't know anything about it. I think when you get to the end of Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, you can imagine several versions of this story from different perspectives, right? Like I would be interested in reading this story from Laura Dean's perspective, as you're describing. I would also read a book from Doodle's perspective. Oh, yeah. I think we do get a lot of Doodle's perspective in this book, though. And it comes from the art, her expressions, the way she uh, averts eye contact with Freddie yeah. every time she's talking about Laura. Well, where Rosemary Valero O'Connell places the camera, mm. right? The, where, like the sec- the sequential paneling. What what are we looking at? Where is Doodle in these scenes? And the longer into the narrative you get, and I'm imagining on a re- reread, oh, yeah. it's even more obvious, like watching Doodle's perspective, watching her face in all these exchanges. Doodle does find it in herself to comfort her friend. And what she says like, is like, this could be way worse. You don't have to battle to the death with someone. And Freddie and Doodle embrace. I think this moment really establishes the dynamic that Doodle and Freddie have since inviting this chaotic Laura Dean into their lives because Doodle really was her savior in that moment. But because of that don't be mad text, Freddie is once again at her diner date with Doodle thinking and talking about Laura Dean and not thanking Doodle for taking care of her when she was sick and taking her home and making sure that her hoodie got into the laundry and all of that stuff. And uh, it establishes like what a thankless job it has been to be Freddie's friend. Well, that's the thing, right? Because the book is not about how Laura Dean is ruining Freddie's life or ruining Freddie's idea of self. It's about how Freddie's inability to deal with Laura Dean's behavior and how that affects all the relationships of her life. Yeah. And not just with Doodle, but with Eric and with her parents, with everyone. Yeah. But what exactly is their relationship, right? Because the book's called Laura Dean Keeps Breaking Up With Me, but this breakup that we see here, which is our first, but not their first, is not actually a breakup. You know, she sees Laura making out with this other girl and then she breaks down and goes on her schnapps binge. It's not resolved in any way because she sees Laura the next day at school and they exchange pleasantries, but math class and Doodle pulls her away. And it's it's not actually a breakup. It's like the presumption of a breakup because now Freddie is so gun shy of having another conversation with Laura that ends with them, with Laura saying, I don't need you. I don't want you. I have other options. So Freddie just goes into like presumption mode. 
and she's completely moping around and totally down. And I love having the metaphor that got brought up when she went to visit, when Doodle brought her to visit the seeker at the door. Um, because the seeker, like, goes like, how did you meet? And she's like, oh. Yeah. We met square dancing in gym class, and Laura Dean was so popular and cool, and then for the first time I felt her in, her uh, attention on me, and it was intoxicating. And we've been kind of on again, off again ever since. And Seeker uses that metaphor of the square dance, of like you, like you're with your partner, and then you spin away for a moment, but then you always keep returning to that same partner. And she gives, the seeker gives the instruction to like, stop dancing, like stop dancing with her. If you're not having fun, like stop dancing. And Freddie doesn't really hear what the seeker is trying to say. But we've been in that kind of relationship before. Like all of us have experienced like a moment of total bliss. And that's what that moment is between Freddie and Laura at in that dance, right? Like this felt so good. That attention felt so good. You just want to hold on to that moment. But what you don't realize is that moment is just a moment, mm -hmm. right? And everything you're doing trying to extend that moment is just poisoning that moment. Just cherish the moment and move on. Well, that is Laura Dean's number one tool with Freddie is this sense of scarcity. Mm. Like, like Laura Dean going like, I can take away my company from you at any time. And so Freddie, when she's with Laura Dean, tries to so like do everything she can to not create conflicts, to not ask questions, to not be vulnerable because then Laura Dean will just take herself away again. And of course, because they've just left the Seeker and she's just been given this really powerful knowledge uh, from the Seeker, who I was skeptical of because I am a skeptic. We talked about mm -hmm. those skeptic feelings. But it's also part of the narrative. But it, it is works. part of the narrative. But who's waiting for Freddie but Laura on the steps of her house? Yeah. And so, of course, she invites Laura Dean inside and into her bedroom. And the way that Laura Dean acknowledges, like, their quote-unquote breakup is like, hey, we haven't been talking, and that makes me unhappy, and I don't think we should not talk anymore. And I'm like, to Laura Dean, is this an apology? Like, like you know, it sounds like a criticism. Like, you stopped talking to me, and now I'm, I'm unhappy? So uh, we should always be How talking. How conscious do you think Laura Dean is of her manipulative ways? I think she is sussing out a pattern. I think that, like, Freddie is teaching her about how to manipulate somebody. Freddie is teaching her how much rope somebody is willing to give to be with her. And I think that... She is tugging on that rope, seeing exactly when she can get Freddie to let go. And uh, she certainly hasn't gotten that far yet. And it is important to remember that these kids are kids. Mm -hmm. They're teenagers. Yeah. I do want to extend Laura Dean, like, that benefit of the doubt. Mm. 
because it doesn't feel good to like take a dump on a kid. <laughs> like yeah. you get so mad at childish behavior, especially when it's coming from a child. And we we know that she doesn't come from uh, a a two parent household, mm-hmm. and so we don't know the examples that she's learning from and en- enacting. It goes back to our point about. I want to read this book from her point of view. Mm, Yeah, yeah. And how much, like, fear she's operating from. But from this point forward, almost to the end of the book, Freddie and Laura Dean are a couple. But Freddie is never happy. She's always trying to reconcile her attraction to Laura Dean to how it's changing, like, how it's changing her inside and making her feel so desperate and crazy. And we see her grappling with like, maybe I can be okay with being desperate and crazy. Maybe it's worth having that relationship to feel this way. And um, there's one point in her letter to Anna Weiss where she writes like, everything I know right now could fit on a post-it. And she goes on to say like, I'm sure you know this. When you're having sex with someone, you see the world in this totally different and kind of messed up way. And I just want to like tell Freddie, like, don't don't blame sex. Sex is not the problem. It's your sense of scarcity of that sex. Like Laura Dean is the source of this thing that I hunger for and I yearn for. But because of that fear that she'll take that away from you, now you don't know what to think. You don't know what to believe about yourself. And you're just putting it on this other thing. Like, clearly, there's something about having sex with someone that clouds your judgment. Well, it's a power play. Freddie has given all of the power in this relationship over to Laura Dean, and that you know, that continues on into the party, which she was invited to by Laura. uh, And she ditches Doodle because the two of them were in the process of making their weird little stuffed animal creations, which I love. Mm -hmm. Uh, And she's expecting when she goes to this party, she's going to get some one-on-one time with Laura, but she's fooled once again, because she's just there to be couch dressing, right? Laura is actually having a bunch of really intimate conversations with other girls. Uh And uh, Freddie is just left there to observe. And in that observation, becoming smaller and smaller and more and more isolated. Yeah, because when she got the text from Laura, like, my parents aren't home, come over at eight. Like, she didn't say, I'm inviting you to a party. So... When Freddie goes there and is like, I'm feeling uncomfortable, like I, you, like she tries to take Laura Dean aside, Laura Dean gaslights her. Like She's like, Laura, I thought we were just going to have some you and me time. And Laura goes like, well, I never said that we were going to have you and me time. And look at everybody else. Everybody else is having a great time. I don't understand why you can't be like everybody else and just have a good time. And this is where we see uh, Freddie start going, doing some mental gymnastics, like trying to figure out how to make this okay. And this is when we get the kind of tangential thing of like her going like, I wonder what it's like to be a sister wife. Like I, I was watching, you know, a show about polygamy 
And like, I can't like, I can't judge the polygamists. Like, that's just like, I mean, yeah, it's a tool of the patriarchy, but uh, maybe, you know, not a terrible idea. And so we try, we see Freddie trying to take her worldview and kind of squish it to fit around Laura Dean's flirtatious behavior. Like going like, I just should learn not to be jealous like a sister wife. Brutal, but not as brutal as the next social gathering uh, that they meet up at, which is one, which is an art show that Freddie had invited Laura to, uh, but Laura had never responded. And the reason Laura never responded to Freddie's invitation is because Laura was going there with another girl. Freddie was going there too with another girl. She was going with V right. from the donut shop who yep. turned out to be like this total totally rad college girl. But when she sees Laura Dean there with this other girl, she starts kind of like going crazy and she decides on impulse to kiss one of V's friends, Mo. And V is visually upset and Laura Dean just disappears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because she saw it. Oh yeah, Dean saw 100%. it. And does what's good for the goose is not good for the gander. Uh, correct. The next day at school, Freddie is on her way to talk to Doodle about something. She doesn't know what it is, but Doodle is like, this is important. You need to talk to me. And Laura Dean pulls her away into a classroom and was like, were you making out with that guy to make me jealous? And Freddie denies that. And Laura Dean was like, okay, well, you were just caught up in the moment and that's a thing that can just happen where you can get caught up in a moment and just start making out with someone. And Freddie's like, I guess. And then Laura Dean drops a pretty big question. Laura Dean drops, so are you breaking up with me? Do you want to break up with me? (laughs) And Freddie is just dumbstruck. And Laura Dean goes on like, well, what is even the point of us breaking up? Because you know, and I know, that we always end up together. And that's kind of our thing. So guess what? I forgive you. See you later. <sighs> What's so nefarious about this seed is how Laura Dean uses Freddie's behavior in this one instance to justify everything she's already done and committed to Freddie. Mm -hmm, Absolutely. And then we also see like in some upcoming negative behaviors, we get to see what happens to Laura Dean when she feels scarcity. And it is incredibly childish and selfish. And she doubles down on all of the like terrorism, like relationship terrorism that she is employing. Yeah, well, I'm thankful because we need her to act that way to finally get to the end of this book and the severing of this relationship, this necessary breakup. I understand why Freddie feels like she has to reach out to Anna Vice in this moment because the way that she has gotten wrapped up in this relationship with Lordine has completely alienated her from every other person in her life at this like extremely awkward time in her development, like her parents have no idea what's going on. They're clearly on a need to know basis Mm -hmm. with doodle. 
she also, like, they do a lot of triangling when it comes to talking about their, like, blossoming sexual selves. And they talk about, like, you know, you heard in Japan, like, they're they're not having sex anymore because of all of the manga and stuff like that. So they talk (laughs) about topics that are around sex, but it's hard when you're, like, a childhood friend that grows into an adult friend. Yeah, and also this relationship... You know, the way that Freddie has been treating Doodle uh, with Laura Dean as the crux, like mm-hmm. like it has wedged them, right? To a point where that uh, Freddie isn't even aware how much of a wedge has been driven because she's been so self-centered on Laura Dean and how Laura Dean is making her feel. She doesn't notice how Laura Dean is making everyone feel. Freddie knows that nobody wants to hear about Laura Dean anymore. Like, she, like, when she's talking to Doodle, she starts saying, well, it's not Laura Dean. Which is why she's reaching out to Anna Weiss, which is why she has completely isolated herself, or what she thinks she has done is isolated herself, and she needs help from somebody else. Right. Now, we do see her open up a little bit to V. And I think that's because V only knows her presently mm. in this moment. Mm. She only knows her as a girl who gets upset and vomits in, in donut shops and then works at a gay delicatessen. Yeah, she's defined by her her relationship with Laura Dean to V. Right, and she's never been a child to V. Hmm. What makes it so hard for me to talk about this particular book is while I didn't date in high school, like for every scene where Freddie has embarrassed herself, I have a parallel painful experience. Like I went to a school dance and saw the guy that I liked making out with another girl and then I just pouted for the rest of senior prom. And I had those relationships where like I was doing way more driving than my boyfriend because I was the one with, like, even though I was the one who had to borrow my parents' car, like, I I remember what it was like to operate from a place of fear and a place of feeling lesser than. Like, I have to, in order to be worthy of a relationship, I have to be willing to go through these hoops that, Maybe the other person created or maybe I was just creating for myself. I felt like I didn't have anybody to talk to either because all of the friends were friends I had since middle school or even elementary school. And it wasn't until years later when we started kind of recounting our histories that they were going through the exact same thing that I was getting into relationships and going like, And just having this like fevered sense of I just got to do whatever I need to do to keep it. Yeah, no wonder this book was so uh, hard for you to read. It was hard for me to read and it was, you know, doubly hard for me to read it twice. Mm -hmm. But I appreciate Mariko Tamaki and Rosemary Valero O'Connell putting this story out so that perhaps some young sheltered girl like me might not fall into some of these same pitfalls. But relating back to Freddie's pseudo relationship with Anna Weiss, I never did write to an advice columnist, but I do think that I was actively seeking answers 
but avoiding the vulnerability of actually talking to anybody about what I was going through. Yeah, maintaining your barrier. Yeah, because I knew that I was like, I knew that I was not nailing it. Well, that's fine because not nailing it is what kids do. It's what Mm -hmm. humans do. We're all just trying to do the best that we can. Uh, But we have to realize that we do have a support system around us. And even though Freddie has isolated herself and she only believes that she can communicate her feelings through Anna Weiss, she does indeed have Doodle. And she needs to really have a conversation with Doodle. She needs to stop pushing Doodle away and reconnect. And the ironic thing is that Doodle has been reaching out to Freddie this entire book because she is actually going through a similar experience where she is entering a sexual relationship that she has shame about and she doesn't quite understand. Every time Doodle brings up the door, hey, I'm gonna go to the door after school. Hey, I've got this new DM. I'm working on a new character. She's begging Freddie to ask some follow-up questions. But Freddie is so in her head and in her shame, she just doesn't hear it. Sure, but there is an end point to Doodle's begging because once she sends off that final text saying, I know it's late, but I need to talk. And when Freddie does not respond to that, Doodle interprets that as, well, we're done. I'm not asking anymore, finito. When Freddie doesn't meet Doodle, at lunch, after Freddie had expressly said, we will talk at lunch, like Doodle is just beyond upset. And Freddie is like, tries to make it better. Like, I'll talk to you after school or can we talk on the phone? And and Doodle is like, no. So in Freddie's mind, Doodle is upset because of this one incident. But we know from reading this book, yeah, 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 that it's a last straw for for Doodle. Yeah, and then, you know, the next day, Doodle isn't at school. And when uh, Freddie goes to talk to Buddy, because she sees that Buddy and Eric are fighting, their relationship's on the rocks, and she makes a comment about it, and Buddy uh, does not want to hear it because she needs to get her own house in order. That's right. Who are you to talk to me? Like, when was the last time you talked to Doodle? And that's a big slap across Freddie's face because she's she was not aware of how bad it was for Doodle. And now it's time for her to find out because she goes to her house and Freddie discovers that Doodle is pregnant. Yeah, and not only is Doodle pregnant, but she is mad at Freddie for not being there for her at this time. And And that's, again, she's like, what do you mean I wasn't there for you? Yeah, that's right. She's like, I'm here now. And uh, Doodle's response is like, never mind. You've been a great friend. Say hi to Laura Dean for me. Heartbreaking. It's not until the next day at school where Freddie is like, please allow me to do something for you. Like, what what can I do for you? And and Doodle says, well, you can come to the appointment with me on Saturday. It's going to be a pill and it would be nice for you to be there for me. Yeah, and of course, who comes ringing but Laura Deed saying, it's an emergency, Freddie. I need your help. Get here immediately. It's that page turn when uh, Freddie gets that text from 
Laura Dean. You want to throw the book across the room. I just, I'm like, Mariko Tamaki, what are you doing <laughs> to my very heart? You're just squeezing it. So Freddie busts her ass to get over to Laura Dean to see what this emergency is. And the emergency is that Freddie has made plans that don't include Laura Dean, the super secret plan that we're, yeah, I'm going to go be with my friend during her abortion. And Laura Dean's reply to Freddie going like, really, you called me here just because you were alone for five seconds? Laura Dean goes, well, whatever other plan you had couldn't have been that important because you dropped that to be here in this moment. So you might as well stay for my birthday party. And I think that is the crux of the issue. Laura Dean has made it so Freddie treats everybody else in their life. Secondary. In, yeah, like yeah. they're not important. And, and this is when uh, Freddie realizes this. And she then runs to meet Doodle at her appointment, but Doodle's already in with the doctor. And so uh, in this incredibly sweet moment, Freddie just bursts into tears sitting next to Doodle's dad in the waiting room. And he's like, uh, it's okay. Doodle's going to be fine. But it's, it's actually Freddie in that moment who is not fine. Or like she's like, it's their friendship that is not fine. But when the chips are down, now that everything has been put out in the air and that Freddie has seen that Doodle has gone through something traumatic mm -hmm. uh, and is shocked and scared for her friend, uh, Freddie steps up. Like, she is now there for Doodle. And she allows Doodle to talk about her terrible experiences and how she ended up in the circumstances that she did. And and Doodle even says, like, there was a time where I was blaming you and uh, the distance that there was between us for my predicament, for getting pregnant. Yeah, and Fre Freddie could, like blow up at that moment. She could get mad. She could be offended. She could she could act out in any number of ways, and she doesn't. Yeah, she completely understands. She now sees, like, how awful she's been. And she reads to Doodle and makes her tea, and her dad, Doodle's dad, is just so grateful to have Freddie there during this time, like, as a single dad. And these acts of service put a bounce to Freddie's step and she's able to go out the next day. She encounters Vi. There's there's a hint that there could be a relationship there. Turns out this college girl is only 18. That's like one year older than Freddie. Yeah, and so now there's a hope, there's a future there beyond Laura Dean. So but, there's only one thing left for Freddie yeah. to do and that is fulfill the... Uh, assignment from the seeker, like, I've got to break up with Laura Dean. So she goes to Laura Dean's house and all of the girls from the birthday party are still there. And she goes right up to Laura Dean and says like, I'm breaking up with you. And Laura Dean freaks out. And Freddie has the I almost said balls, not appropriate. <laughs> she ovaries up and she tells <laughs> Laura Dean, like, you are a bad girlfriend. And worse than that, when I'm with you, 
I'm a bad friend. And Laura Dean goes off the handle and just is yelling the F word at her and and um, just losing her full mind. Full tantrum. Yeah, she full tantrums. And Freddie turns around, I love this, and looks at Laura Dean and says, don't be mad, which is what Laura Dean had told her when uh, after she had made out with Mitzi at the party. Yeah, I didn't catch that on my read. I'm glad uh, you're there to spot that out because that is burn. Oh, so good. <laughs> so good. So the story ends. Laura Dean is prom king, but uh, Freddie is dancing with Doodle, and it's the first time she's been genuinely happy in this entire book. And it does feel like a relief for the reader. You're, you are elevated by her happiness, by her relief. Uh, yeah. I Like, my hope for Laura Dean is that she does, like, she does take a look at what being this manipulative person has turned her into. And she also finds a way that she can be happy without draining people without being a succubus. I hope that's the case. I need that book from her point of view during this entire event for me to feel that way. I don't come away from this story thinking that's going to happen at all. I but don't know. I think probably they both have a few more mistakes to make. They are young yet. So I think we're at the stage of this podcast where we talk about what we have learned. And I've kind of been stressing over this question because you are relating to very young characters. And I like to think that I have graduated uh, well beyond their stage in life. Uh, and, and, and I was like, well, so what have I learned? Because I feel like for most of this book, I was sitting in judgment of all of these characters, like the good adult that I am. <laughs> <laughs> but I wasn't sure if I learned anything. And I think as I started to question that, I was like, well, did I learn anything? No, I didn't learn anything. And then suddenly I go, well, that's incredibly naive of you, Brad, to think that you can't learn from this story. There's a lot to pull from this story. You have me on the edge of my seat. Like, what did you learn? Well, it is an excellent reminder to pull your head out of your butt. Uh -huh. right? Like, it's so easy to get enveloped in your own nonsense. And I think about all the times that you go off to work and you do your work thing. I go off to work. I go do my work thing. Something happens and it, it it boils my blood and you come home and I'm like, Lisa, I'm expecting you to take the brunt of my misery and my frustration and I attack you with it. But I don't consider that, oh, actually, Lisa was out in the world and she had things that happened to her that boiled her blood and she doesn't need me to uh, unload on her in this moment. You know, like... We have to recognize in our relationships that our partners are going through their own lives. And those relationships are also our friendships, right? Like while you're all caught up in your stuff, your friends are all caught up in their stuff. And you need to open yourself up and you need to be curious about what's happening in the lives of everyone around you if you want them to stick around. I love that. And like, I'm gonna bring up Dr. Roberta M. Gilbert for one last what? time, it goes back to that emotional sponge where like when you meet, when you see your friend or when you see me come home from work, you don't know at what, like you assume like my emotional capacity is like, well, clearly she hasn't been with me all day. So her emotional capacity should be bottomless. Yeah, sometimes I'm shocked you come back home 
And you're not in the exact same mood you were in when you left. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So out there, I've been experiencing the anxieties of life. I come home, my sponge is nearly full. I don't have to, I don't have any emotional capacity to take on your anxiety water. And the same, it, like it goes both ways. Yeah. Like when when you're feeling overwhelmed, the first thing you want want to do is like push that on another person. But really the best thing to do is first go like, hey, I'm about to put some of my anxiety on you. Are you ready? Bring it. Yeah. But, but you need the other person to say, bring it. Yeah, you ha- <laughs> like they you have to acknowledge that they're they're they could also be having their own life, I guess. Right. And exactly. I don't, yeah. I don't think like you take me for granted. No, 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 way. no. But I mean, I think there are occasions where I don't consider those things. And yeah. I think you could say the exact same thing. Oh, yeah. And if you have a friend that you haven't spoken to in a while, give them a call. See how they're doing. Oh, yeah. And ask and ask how they're doing before you go into how you're doing. It's dumb that we have to say that, but it's true. But I mean, it's we true. all mess that it's up. It's absolutely true. And Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me is a fine example of that, like I said. Good. That's a great answer. Now it's your turn, Lisa. Oh, my. Okay. I've already mentioned how, like, reading this book, Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me. So, like, I found the experience so triggering and so stress inducing because it was bringing up all of these embarrassing, uh, emotionally painful experiences that I went through. But like our upbringing was like completely different. And I put- You and I. No, me and- And Laura. And Freddie. Uh, Freddie, yeah, 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 yeah. Because like I put a lot of like the mistakes that I made on like my parents, like, you know, they're super conservative and- and they opted me out of sex ed where everybody else was taking sex ed. I was like reading. I had to go and sit alone in the library and read packets about human bones and stuff like that. And I go like if I had been prepared by my parents, then maybe I would have had an easier time with it. But like uh, Freddie had super liberal parents and she was able to live this like out life and it was still hard. Yeah. I also had very, uh, I don't know if I would, they would, they would not like me calling them liberal parents, but compared to your parents, (laughs) they were certainly liberal. Um, but, but it's, it's still the same. Like Sexual awakening, puberty it is uh, an isolating experience. We and do not, even in those sex ed classes, uh, prepare children to go through it properly and to eventually couple with someone. Right, right. Where the the Puritan values that this country was based on, like, permeates everybody's existence, and even the even the liberal kids don't get to talk about sex with mom and dad or with each other. Like we do have that scene in this book where uh, Doodle and Freddie overhear two girls kind of casually talking about uh, their birth control. Right. Like one girl is like, like, oh, I-, I take the pill. And the other girl is like, oh, I have an inner uterine device. And so she's like, is that pokey? And then they just casually laugh. And- Doodle and Freddie don't have that. Like, and I guess what my hope is for the future is that eventually this kind of barrier between 
women talking to each other can fall away. And we can really, like, through stories like Laura Dean keeps breaking up with me, we will find it cool and hip to be like, hey, I'm considering losing my virginity. What do you think about that, Amy? And then Amy would be like, that sounds very cool. I would also like to lose my virginity. And then we would high five and make great choices. We need to remove shame and embarrassment from the sex act. I'm still so uncomfortable with that idea that I don't even know how, like, I don't know where to begin removing shame from sex. Sex is essential and necessary to life. That's right. We should celebrate it. Yeah. We should educate it. We should be open about it. I like, there are so many necessary things to life that have so much shame associated with, like think about how Americans talk about food. Right. You know, like Uh we can't even talk about food without getting super weird. But at least with food, you could turn on Netflix and watch Sugar Rush extra sweet, right? Oh yeah, that's true. Where's like the the sex equivalent of that that's not just porn? I think that it's books, like Lori Dean keeps breaking up with me and movies and just the idea of like putting it out there that hey, high schoolers are going through this. It's not beneficial to pretend that it's not happening. So if we can take the awkwardness out of teenagers having sex, then we can get to the actual issue that is, Freddie was in a toxic relationship. It was harming her self-esteem. It was harming her other relationships. Let's give girls like Freddie the tools to recognize that relationships should make them feel happy. They can make them feel crazy. They can make them feel like they're on a a Ferris wheel. But at the end of the day, relationships are there to make you feel more connected to the world, not less. And you should be on an even playing field with your partner. Yeah. They should not be your boss. Yeah. You, they shouldn't make you feel like uh, frantic. So, yeah, I th- I'm going to say thank you, Marika Tamaki and Rosemary Valero O'Connell for giving me this book. It was something that I was not necessarily like excited to tackle. Um, but now that I've read it, I recognize why it won the mm-hmm. Eisner this year. Uh, congratulations to them. We haven't mentioned that yet, but it won the Eisner. Well done. Mariko Tamaki won uh, Best Writer as well. And uh, Rosemary Valero O'Connell won Best Artist. And uh, I can't argue with that. Very well deserved. Whew. Brad, I feel like I need a stiff drink. Would you like some schnapps? Uh, No, I definitely don't want any of your (laughs) schnapps, but I am super excited for our next episode, uh, which is Comic Book Couples Counseling Episode 50. Dun, dun, dun. What, what? Uh, To celebrate the occasion, we're taking on a comic book couple that is near and dear to Lisa's heart. Maybe even her most uh, favorite comic book couple. Is that fair to say, Lisa? 100% the truth. Yeah, Don Greenwood and Norrin Rad from Dan Slott and Michael Allred's Silver Surfer Run. Here's the thing. We want to cover the entire run over four episodes. That means we need to read a little extra uh, at one point during this series, which will prove challenging when it comes to our notes and keeping the episodes to our usual runtime. Fingers crossed and all that. No promises. I can talk about Don Greenwood and Norrin Rad for literally ever and ever and ever. I know. I know. We all know this. Uh, So for episode 50, since we'll be dealing with a lot of historical setup in addition to the actual comedy, we're focusing on, 
we're only going to discuss Silver Surfer Volume 7, Issues 1 through 5, plus the Silver Surfer sections of all new Marvel Now, point one, number one. Boy, that's a mouthful. <laughs> uh, to make it easy on you, why don't you just pick up the first trade paperback in the slot in Allred series entitled A New Dawn? You will not regret it. The plan for episodes after that is to cover the second trade paperback on the second episode, trade paperbacks three and four for the third episode, and the final fifth trade paperback on our last Don and Norrin episode. You excited, Lisa? I'm super excited. Who's our love guru? Who's going to help Norrin and Don deal with the power cosmic? It's going to be Stephanie Baron Hall, and the book is The Enneagram in Love, A Roadmap for Building and Strengthening Romantic Relationships. The Enneagram is another like personality type It sounds thing. like a Scientology thing. It does a little bit, <laughs> um, but it's, it's more like the Myers-Briggs where like it categorizes people into numbers and then from that they, uh, yeah, give you some guidance. I've n- I don't even know my own Enneagram. All I know is that uh, there are people who are super into it. Okay, Brad, it's time to ditch this class and get on with our adult lives. Thank God. <laughs> Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? Uh, you can find me on all social medias at MouthDork. If you have words of affirmation for our logo, you can send them to Aaron Prescott at a cool hand fluke. And if you have some words of affirmation for our radical banner art, as well as our upcoming celebratory big 5-0 poster art, stay tuned, then send them over to at Karen underscore X-Men fan. They are dominating with their commissions of late. Oh my goodness. Yes. Lisa. Where can our listeners send their words of affirmation to you? That is so sweet. I am always accepting words of affirmation at Sidewalk Siren on Instagram and Twitter. If you'd like to spend more quality time with us, you can subscribe to us on Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, YouTube, and iTunes. If you'd like to reach out and touch us electronically, you can email the podcast cbccpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram and Twitter at cbccpodcast. You can give us the gift of five stars on iTunes, and if you'd like to do an active service, why not write a review of the show while you're there? We are fluent and receptive of all five love languages. It really warms our hearts and helps the pod. So until next time, folks, keep your love tank full. And your psychic rapport open. We haven't even done a sound check. Did we just do a sound check now? Uh, I mean, we had just recorded an episode, and so I figured that... Oh, that we hadn't touched any of the levels or anything. Let's, but let's listen, because I this is our sound check now. Okay, great. <laughs>